Hello, welcome to Typewriter Talks. This podcast features interviews with writers, poets, and other bookish folks. My name is Maureen McDowell, and I am the founder and executive director of Keep St. Pete Lit, which is a literary arts organization based in St. Petersburg, Florida. On Typewriter Talks, we discuss all kinds of writerly topics, hoping to show you that there is not one right way to be a writer. Today, we are happy to welcome Jarrett Keene. Jarrett earned his PhD in creative writing at Florida State University. A beloved and highly sought after professor, Dr. Keene is an assistant professor in the Department of English at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where he teaches American literature and the graphic novel. He has written a travel guide, a rock band biography, poetry collections, and edited short fiction anthologies, including Las Vegas Noir and Dead Neon, Tales of Near Future Las Vegas. His newest book, Hammer of the Dogs, is a YA dystopian thriller set in the wasteland of post-apocalyptic Las Vegas. Welcome, Jarrett. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here all the way in Las Vegas. You're in Las Vegas now, correct? Correct. But uh, as you might know, I'm from Tampa, Florida. I spent a lot of time in St. Petersburg there, checking out shows at Janus Landing, hanging out in the Dali Museum, uh, etc. Yes. So I also grew up here um, and I went to many of shows at Janus Landing. Now it's called Janus Live. Right. But- we, that it was the glory days in the '90s of the music scene here, seeing bands for fifteen, ten dollars, and I love the Concrete yeah. Blonde, Iggy Pop. Yeah, Jackson. yeah. My poor child has to pay like hundreds of dollars now to see his favorite bands. We lived it's in the a, glory days. It's a bit tragic today, but uh, at least we have we experienced it and uh, have the wonderful memories of that of that time, that place, and it's it's still a, a wonderful area to live. Yes, it just got voted as one of the happiest places to live on Outside Magazine, from Outside Magazine. Right. That's crazy, even though we have hurricanes that just pass by us. Oh, you know, it keeps keeps you on your toes. It keeps you, you know, awake. So tell us what you're working on right now. Um, I just released my dystopian adventure novel, Hammer of the Dogs, and it's something that uh, I've been working on for a few years. It all began when I had, I guess you might say, a different career. I was working as a corporate communicator for the hotel casinos here on the Las Vegas Strip. And with my little employee badge, I could sneak around all over these properties, Luxor, Mandalay Bay, MGM Grand, Bellagio, and see back of house, see how things worked the worlds within worlds, the, um, you know, the Luxor sky beam, how that functioned and operated and was maintained. I uh, snuck backstage to see the Mandalay Bay wave machine there on the beach, the uh, ersatz, um, you know, coastal environment that they created there with, you know, the sand and the, and the water. And I don't know, I just began to think about what this Uh, environment might look like should there be a kind of well collapse and then adding to everything there was the uh, convention uh, business that you know you might be aware that Las Vegas is a huge destination for uh, industry conventions yeah one of those conventions uh, is the drone tech convention 
And so every year it seemed there'd be a gathering of um, companies whose mission it was is to advance drone technology, drone surveillance, drone weaponry. And so I'd sneak in, I'd crash these gatherings, and uh, I was awestruck and a little frightened by what they were um, bringing to the convention floor. Uh, to see that confluence, to see the connection between uh, the tech sector, military industrial complex, law enforcement, higher education, foreign governments, to see them all together engaged in this business of building smarter, smaller, faster, more lethal drones um, added to my, uh, you might say, um, unusual understanding of Las Vegas and the surrounding desert. Um, so I decided to come up with a, uh, an adventure story. And it all began um, with the opening scene of my novel, which I, I hope I'll have a chance to read to you. It's uh, That's where I started and I just dreamed the rest straight through, much like uh, we dreamed our way through those 80s sci-fi action uh, apocalypse movies you and I enjoyed as uh, kids. Yeah, and so why did you choose to do it as a YA novel? Well, um, you know, I'm using that term uh, maybe a little uh, loosely. Uh, yeah, I, I always loved Jack London. Yeah. <laughs> White, White Fang, etc. Call of the Wild. And uh, I loved um, Stephen Crane, you know, the Red Badge of Courage. And I loved um, Huckleberry Finn and all those um, novels that feature young men and women. I don't know if you read The Yearling. Yes. By Marjorie Rawlings. Yeah, it's an uh, incredible little story, little novel. And her uh, house here. I, there used to be a, a, a writing conference. I think it was in the early 90s called Writing, or maybe the mid 90s. I'm not sure. Called Writing the Region. And, yes, I remember it. Yeah, Gain in Gainesville. And um they part of the writing conference was a trip out to her house and that was just so cool good old florida love florida yes so i make a note here that you and i need to revive that that conference yes <laughs> yes that was a great conference but in any case uh yeah growing up in florida reading these uh uh adventure novels they always stuck with me and um you know, Fahrenheit 451, you could argue that that's a, a why. I mean, you know, I'm using the term loosely, but it's just that kind of adventure fiction that uh, you never grow out of. And so that's sort of my revised definition or understanding of young adult literature. I don't really see Hammer of the Dogs as having much to do with the uh, YA category genre as it currently stands. I'm I'm shooting for something, maybe aiming for something a little grander, a little, little more timeless. Well, and you also seem to, based on um, your writing portfolio, if that's the term, <laughs> you're you're kind of all over the board and what um, interests you as a writer. Yes. It, so you don't, um, you, you're not really drawn to just one genre, which is awesome. Yeah, I mean, it might be my ADHD or it just might be that I uh, love moving from you know, uh, category to category. I just, um, I think I was lucky in the sense that I didn't get an academic job immediately after graduate school. You know, I had to work for many years as a entertainment journalist. 
And then, as I mentioned, I became a corporate communicator, like uh, a writer of internal propaganda for the um, mm -hmm. casino companies. <laughs> and then finally, I managed to, to snare a, a teaching job, which transitioned into a, you know, a tenure position. I just, um, I was lucky, I think, because it, it taught me all the different uses of writing. And it's this application, this hands-on approach to uh, you know, making writing work for you as a career that I bring to my students. And I think they appreciate it because um, I do notice that they um, seek out and achieve validation through writing, through publication, through, uh, this may sound wild, getting paid for their work. What a concept. <laughs> 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 Marine, as you as you know, being a uh, you know in, in a literary in the literary field, you know payment comes the payments come few and far between. <laughs> yeah, I I have a reading tonight, and I'm driving all the way to Tampa, <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, you know, and it's like if you just think about it, it's it's just for shits and giggles in some some ways because there's no payment to show up and read your work for 10 minutes and drive all the way over the bridge which isn't that far but you know if you know oh, it's in still 40 dollars in gas i mean yeah you know, if, you, if you live in st pete tampa is a, is a whole other galaxy far far away <laughs> yes yes well i uh you know i understand more than anyone how um desperate it can be trying to get paid for for being a, you know, your work as a writer and um one of the biggest drawbacks to being a freelancer, at least in the um, mid-2000s, early 2010s, was uh, simply collecting the money that that you're owed. You know, I would, I was working as a stringer for People Magazine, Us Weekly, you know, these these magazines you see in the grocery store still today, the, yeah. the, um, at the pharmacy or whatever, and it would take me forever to get paid. I'd have to use their portal. I'd have to upload my documents, my documentation and, you know, my receipts and all the stuff. And it, it just took, it took months to get um, work first uh, to get paid for the work done that I did for high profile, you know, so-called elite uh, publications. So um, it's just not easy getting paid. It's not easy to, you know, um, have these companies pay you promptly on time and, and, or at least timely enough so that you can pay your rent. But then we're still writers, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> we are not deterred. We still do it. And, and yes. you're teaching, you're teaching students to write. So there is still that optimism and the, the excitement that keeps you going. Oh, yes. I mean, before I, uh, got on this call with you, I was, finishing up a recommendation letter for a student who's, a you know, applying for a PBS job here in town. And I, I know that student will secure the job because uh, they interview great. They've got a great CV and they've got, you know, some great rec letter, rec letters, including one that I've written them. So. So tell us what a typical day looks like for you as a writer. Well, as a writer, um, it's very important for me to clear my head and sort of get into the the space that I need to be in. And for me, that uh, involves, you know, going to the gym or doing like some circuit training or going outside for a hike. Um, I find that if I embrace nature, which is a bit hard to come by here in uh, the Vegas Valley, you know, it's very beige, very uh, dusty, very artificial. I tend to have to um, 
go to the edge edges of the valley, you know, uh, Mount Charleston, uh, Red Rock National Park, you know, uh, Valley of Fire, places like that to kind of clear my head and get into that, uh, you know, proper space, like as I was saying. And then, um, you know, I might sit down for a few hours and hopefully get a at least a thousand, two thousand, if I'm lucky, three thousand words, um, you know, on the page on the on the word document. And from there, it's uh, it's just revising and building. I'm not someone who can write a book the whole way through. I have to revise as I go along, especially if um, you know where I've ended. It feels a little wonky or strange. I, I want that. I want it to settle. And so to a degree, it becomes a little bit like sculpture more than oh, I know, love that. I love that. Writing, writing all the way straight through. I tend to kind of, you know, to polish and pamper my chapters. Uh, at least that was the case with this novel. And I, I've certainly done the same for nonfiction. And I just, you know, move my way through the book and try to, I try to stay in a dream state, which is, um, as you know, becomes increasingly more difficult with, the more technology that burbles and beeps around us. Yeah. You know, you try to turn off social media. You don't want any, any of those notifications or anything like that. Um, Cause they can distract me. And then I, um, you know, I just push until I can get to a place where I have something to present to, you know, uh, what you might call a, a reader or, or someone who's uh, willing to edit. Um, or give me some ideas. And that's really just, that's really just the process for me. I can't really sit on a book and work on it for more than, um, you know, a few months. I have to put it aside, pick up something else, maybe an article or, or a poem or a short story. Or Yeah. You know. I, I like to move between different things too, depending on my mood. <laughs> yes nice to have multiple like I've got poetry and I've got essays and then I write an article for a magazine and it's it's nice to move between those depending on what headspace I'm in are you do you are you led by the characters or are you led by the plot or both well I'm led by I don't know what to call them scenes set pieces you know like moments um I am you know for better or worse shaped by those uh dark movie theater screenings uh in the 80s of films like goonies gremlins mm -hmm. empire strikes back of course going yeah. the barbarian and i loved all the obscure movies that uh i saw you know like sheena <laughs> supergirl <Yeah. laughs> the ones that didn't do so well at the box office i uh howard the duck um legend of billy jean you know these these movies oh that... i love legend of the billy jean <laughs> i love that movie god that was such a cool movie well that movie was very big in tampa in the 80s in the you know yeah. during that time yeah Not my to... kid is totally into movies he's 17 and he he has a hard time because a lot of his friends were raised you know with social media and cell phones and they don't have the attention span to sit through a movie and i was very like like no cell phone until you're in ninth grade and like you can watch dvds like very like kind be outside do art and he's yeah. really he struggles with that because he wants to share these movies with all his friends he's a huge movie buff but that they, they just don't have the attention span a lot of them so he's oh. always got some he's there's a big halloween um 
marathon coming up of he, uh, at uh, Tampa Theater, and he's just so excited. It's really cool to see. You mean the slasher franchise? Yeah. Well, no. Like at, they're ha- they're showing Saw, and they're showing oh, a bunch of different. And he actually is just created out of foam the headgear of the movie Saw that he's wearing. It's just like, wonderful. I know. I'm looking at this child, and I'm like, "You're such a gift. You're so like not the yeah. main." reality so i i totally and we're total movie buffs like we actually gauge people if they like interstellar or not we're like if you don't right. like interstellar they're not our people like we just right. can't <laughs> it's yes. funny but do you so do you plot out your stories or you just really go with the flow with them i really dream them out i mean i have four or five what you might call connected scenes and then i'll try to find a way to connect those to you know three four or five other uh, you know, momentous, fantastic scenes. Um, I really constructed Hammer of the Dogs, and I hope I'm hoping I'll do it again with the uh, you know the sequel to this book. But I really constructed it like um, you know an '80s sci-fi fantasy film, like Labyrinth or Legend, where every you know scene cut leads you to another uh, wondrous uh, yet frightening um, you know moment. And I don't, um, I don't know any other way at this point, you know, I was doing it already with my fiction, trying to, to, you know, cut right to the, what you might say, the, uh, the no filler, all killer scenes. And I found myself uh, really enjoying that. So I decided to stretch out and do it with a, with a longer work with, with this novel. And it's a lot of fun to, um, to, you know, write something fun. (laughs) Yeah. So how has your writing process changed over the years? Well, when I uh, when I completed my PhD in creative writing, I was a, an anxious mess. You know, I believed in uh, fierce revision. I believed in fierce literary standards. I believed, you know, I was really kind of uncompromising and snobby. And it wasn't making me happy. <laughs> so I moved uh, beyond that, well beyond that. Um, I still love everything I wrote uh, in my 20s. I think in moments I'm better. I was better in my 20s than I am now uh, to, you know, in certain aspects. But uh, because I was so principled and uncompromising and so literary. But, you know, uh, I just realized that I I was sort of writing the same stuff that everyone else was writing. And Mm -hmm. uh, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't confident that what I had to say was any more distinctive than what was being published in uh, the literary magazines or the, um, or, you know, the, the New Yorker, the Atlantic or something like that. So I decided to really uh, please myself and make myself happy and write with the kind of, uh, this is the term that I've been using lately, you know, bright darkness that mm-hmm. I enjoyed in so many of these um, 80s movies that, um, that I loved. Uh, and I don't want to, leave out the animated features that I grew up loving, like Secret of Nim. Oh my God, I am her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the last... <laughs> I love that movie. Uh, yeah. The Last Unicorn. Yes, 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 yes. Who, who Framed Roger Rabbit, things like that. You know, they really, um, they really moved me. And um, I wanted to write in that way that's unforgettable. You know, uh, I think I saw Secret of Nim once as a child, and I uh, at the movie theater, and I, I you know, I, I never, I memorized every part of it 
just from that one viewing, I was so, you know, I like laser focused on it and I didn't watch it again for many years, maybe until I was in graduate school. And I, I realized, Hey, this is, um, this is just terrific storytelling, whether it's for kids or, or whoever. Um, and I want to write like that. You know, I want to write that kind of story that when you read it, you just don't forget it. And it just stays with you. And um, that's what I set out to do with, uh, you know, this book, Hammer of the Dogs. So what would you tell your younger writer self? Oh, man, lighten up. Don't be so serious. Don't don't write negative endings all the time. Be, you know, vary your endings. I, I just, I was trying to be so serious and so, I don't know. I just be less miserable and and it's it's okay to write a happy ending and it's okay to love your characters and not destroy them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It's just too what much is- of that. And I, I feel like today, you know, when I pick up a science fiction, I, I don't even like science fiction, honestly. I mean, you know, science fiction novels, I, I read very few of them um, because they seem to always end on a downer and um, I don't want to end on a down. You know, I want, people to read a story of mine or a book of mine and at the end like you know go you know pump their fist a little bit in the air go yes you know they did it (laughs) yeah use the force yes (laughs) it's very ingrained in us that um, I'm gonna be 49 this year I'm not sure how old you are but it's like it's very ingrained in us that kind of like uh, optimism to you know destroy the death star (laughs) you know like the jedis like it's it's in us to the generation X of, of just like, we can, we can do this. We can survive anything. <laughs> you see it in like hunger games to a degree, but, but you know, it's, 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 it's in the, on the literary side of in the book end of it, that uh, I feel like things are more like, you know, handmade handmaid's tale. Like there's a lot of torture and just, Oh, I had to stop watching it. Like the series. I couldn't, I just, I'm like, life is hard enough. I can't bring this into my, I just no. can't. And Game of Thrones, really. Uh, that too. I, I literally, I was been, I'm sorry, I'm totally, I'm getting so excited. I was binge watching it and I had to stop because I kept thinking someone was going to come around every corner with a sword and kill me. Like it yeah. was too much. It was just too much. Yeah. Well, it's, it was the mutilation, the torture and the, you know, the other, the other horrible things that, that, oh. that really grossed me out. I couldn't, um, you know, I'm just not, I'm just, I'm built differently. I need, I need my... I need a little bit of uh, brightness to the dark to, you know, to counteract the darkness. I can't have it, you know, depressing all the way through. It just, uh, I'm, I'm done. I, I, I just can't. <laughs> what are, what are you, what are you noticing? How long have you been teaching? Uh, let's see. I started teaching part-time in 2001 sporadically, but then I started teaching full-time in let's see, 2010. So what are what are you noticing about students over those years? Because that's about 22, 22 years. How is how have they changed? Well, you've touched on it uh, already. I mean, they're uh, cinematically, uh, I don't want to say illiterate, but they just don't care about the things that year after year, it seems the students have less interest in, you know, uh, what you might call the monoculture or, you know, the um, mainstream popular culture they're very much into video games anime manga today and uh they're not at all interested in uh anything that they've encountered uh in high school or through their parents (laughs) you know they just i don't think they've uh absorbed any of it which is sort of exciting because it challenges me to catch up and 
and you know you know engage with these uh, art forms that you know I I knew a little bit about as a Gen Xer, but um, you know they've really uh, they've really embraced things like webtoons and um, you know uh, uh, what you might call um, science fiction fantasy manga. Yeah, my child watches people play video games. Yes, yes. Like it's a thing. It's like on YouTube, they'll watch a... Yeah. A, yeah. And, um, I mean, it's it's interesting to a degree. Like, I, I sit with my sons and, and watch them watch videos of people <laughs> playing video games just because, you know, it's my opportunity to spend time with them. Uh, you know, I got to follow them to a degree. Um, but but they I, wanna be, these students want to be writers still, though. It's very weird. Yeah, it's very strange. They want to be writers, but they're, they want to write um, things that I'm to a large degree uh, ignorant of. And I'm trying to, um, it's hard. I work harder now to bridge that chasm, you know, to kind of meet them halfway. And I didn't have to do that, you know, maybe 10 years ago. It's really accelerated um, in the last decade. So are you hopeful? Oh, very much. I mean, my students are um, terrific. And what I'm most hopeful about is that you know, they hide it away, but they're writing their little fan fiction, doing their little comics, their cosplay, their video game sketches and mock-ups and ideas, and they're doing their little YouTube channels and yeah. podcasts. And so they're working. It's just, you know, they, uh, to a degree, you know, I, as a, and probably you as, as a Gen Xer, you know, we, we hit away our, our secret passions, you know, uh, like uh, interview with a vampire or neuromancer we we uh, yeah yeah well we did that the alter anything kind of alternative that wasn't like coca-cola (laughs) t-shirts like scrunchies just didn't didn't fit into you you were you were different you were you know a weirdo or whatever term you want to use and it was definitely counterculture we did not have our hot topic right and so but now that's it's more mainstream to be um all those things it's very I've, I've seen that as well yeah i've seen that as well it's pretty but it, it is cool because my kid like goes to comic-con festivals and sells his art and he's like 17 and does fan fan art and people love it and dresses up like edward scissorhands in a handmade costume and it's just like so yes. cool to see all these kind of different things that they're touching on these kids yes and, um, at least my kid um and so it's, it, 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 it makes me hopeful too, as well. So, so one more question and then let's hear some of your work. What would be like your elevator pitch or like your lightning strike advice for other writers? Well, uh, it would be to write everything and anything you can and not to be snobby about, you know, the possibility of writing for a magazine that covers something you're, you know, you're not familiar with. Um, and I think students should automatically just head right to the student newspaper on their campus <laughs> mm-hmm. and start there. Yeah. And, uh, you'll learn a lot about, uh, the production process, layout, design, um, journalistic standards. And, um, the other thing I would encourage is you don't really need to do a writing program or um, this is not much of a lightning strike, but you know you don't need a writing program. You don't need a a journalist journalism degree. You can get to work right away. Uh, I think that's very valuable. Maybe even more valuable than uh, 
you know, the degrees themselves. Yeah, it's funny. My friend Mark Haber, when I we went to USF together and got an English degree, both of us. That's how I met him. And he was like, when we were growing up, Maureen, like, uh, you know, MFAs weren't a thing, <laughs> you yes. know? And I was like, you're right. You're right. Because it's like writers that are about a decade younger than me. I have several friends that are that age and they all have MFAs. And I was like, and every, every, like every September or like August, I'll entertain the idea, but I'm like, I don't want to get $40,000 in debt for poetry, <laughs> you know, like, so it's funny, like it's a certain, it's a generational thing, kind of the whole MFAs, but I'm, I'm very curious to see if that kind of like kids don't necessarily want to go to college or move on to those spaces. They want to be more creative or trades. There's a rise in trades or, or, you know, being self-taught. So it's really interesting how that pendulum swings. So I mean, I'm a professor. I want, I want students to enroll in the MFA program here at the university, but if they do that, I think they should also uh, understand that there is a professional technical commercial side to writing that they need to understand and engage and engage with, you know, um, that to me is more important than the degree itself. The degree is, is really just about, you know, the workshop process, which is wonderful or can be wonderful, but, you know, there's also just the, the hard work and determination and doing what you need to do in order to get a, a paycheck as, as small as it may be. It's something and it, it validates you and makes you a professional. I love that. That's, that's wonderful advice. It's wonderful advice. So let's hear some of your work. You bet. I'll just um, read the opening so you'll get an idea of what, uh, what Hammer of the Dogs offers readers, which is um, hopefully a lot of fun and a lot of uh, danger and a lot of imagination. This is chapter one. Lash used a rock to smash the window of a vacant tract home. Before climbing in, she looked to see if the micro drone had followed. It careened from the front of the house, the pilot overcorrecting, the machine glancing off the brick facade. It was a nasty homebrew with a thermal imaging camera and what looked like an SRS A2, the world's smallest sniper rifle. The four brushless motors had no gears, making it a quiet, efficient, nearly inescapable killer. She knew the hushed rotor wash would be imperceptible, even inches from her face. But Lash didn't hear drones. She intuited them. Drones changed the atmosphere around her. She was drawn to them, repulsed by them. For the briefest moment, her adversary had her mesmerized. Then the bucket of bits and chips steadied itself to draw a deadly bead. She jumped through the window. A shard of glass sliced her forearm. A bullet ripped through the window inches from her face. She yelped, fell backward onto a floor of broken dishes and garbage, then scampered out of the kitchen and got up to sprint for the door. In the tiled living room, she slipped on something greasy and landed on her tailbone. Shockwaves of pain racking her spine. She got up and ran again. Still, she felt her stalker ghosting the air, growing closer. She was outside now. The longer she avoided death, the sooner the drone would exhaust its power supply and have to return to base station or risk crashing. But she had no idea where the station might be. The pilot, Richter, could be anywhere, orchestrating her demise with a suitcase downlink powered by an old car battery. He could be across the street right now, ready to blow her brains out with an AK, SKS, or even an old Remington. She took the chance. Lungs burning, legs throbbing, she made for the narrow space between two houses. 
She hoped to find a skateboard or kick scooter, anything to get her downhill fast and out of the suburban maze. She'd been searching for paint thinner. She was building a flamethrower and needed fuel that stayed liquid as it burned. She'd fantasized all year about incinerating Richter's cruel and handsome face. Gunfire cracked, shattering a garden gnome. She bounded a wooden backyard fence and spotted shears beside a drained swimming pool. She grabbed the landscaping tool just as the micro drone whirred up behind her. Swinging the shears, she pinched the machine by its landing skid, using its momentum to bounce it once, twice off the sliding glass door. The drone sputtered free, bobbing like a storm-tossed fishing cork and fired. A giant spiderweb fracture erupted behind Lash with her black Bedford lace-up combat boots. She kicked her way in and headed for the garage. She whimpered a prayer to St. Joseph of Cupertino, patron of pilots, for help against her assailant. But Richter was relentless. Nothing could save her now. If only she had a GPS jammer, something to spoof the drone into autopilot mode. All she had were fields of dead grass, dust, and abandoned homes. The overhead garage door was locked. She ducked into the laundry room and, noticing a can of lighter fluid, smiled with pyromaniacal intent. She opened a refrigerator, got in and closed the door, fumbling in her cargo shorts for the Zippo. She listened for the drone, sensed it nearby. It was searching for a heat signal. She would give it one. She swung open the fridge door. It clipped one of the drone's rotors, which sent it spinning out into the hallway. As it thrashed, fighting to achieve liftoff, she drenched it with lighter fluid, then flicked her Zippo, tossed it, and squirted more fluid onto the flaming bot. Desperate to kill, the drone fired. Melting carbon caused the bullet to miss and ricochet into a box of cat litter. Lash took the opportunity to whack the machine with a broom handle. Billowing smoke inside this cramped space made it hard to breathe. She slid open the lone window, leaped into the backyard again, and hauled, never looking back. Oh my God, I was so visual. I was so in it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's awesome. I was totally seeing it like a movie. Just like yes, you yes. wanted. And I wanted to make sure that uh, we begin in medias rest, you know, in the middle of the action and not um, with the character waking up in the morning and petting the cat and getting ready to uh, start the day in the post-apocalypse. I wanted the story to... Um, to suck the reader in and to, you know, you gradually, you, you learn about Lash and her uh, desperate circumstances and um, the fact that she's not exactly like your uh, everyday dystopian warrior uh, hero hero or heroine. She, she's someone who's got uh, a specific mission in mind. I love though also that um, you're, you're already rooting for her. Like yes. Like, and even the name Lash, like it, it, it can have multiple meanings like eyelashes, but also like, you know, you can lash somebody and cut yes. them. I love it. Thank you so much, Jared. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Oh, I love that we should do this again. I, I, I hope we'll um, uh, spend some time there looking at the books uh, when I'm uh, in the Tampa St. Pete area. Yeah, please look me up. And, um, you know, we have all kinds of events going on in the city. It's There's never a dull moment in the art community very different than how it was when you lived here. And oh, yeah. uh, it's a wild, <laughs> it's, during COVID, it was like quiet. And, and at, you know, right after the lockdown, we had two weeks and it was like, I actually started tearing up because I went out driving and it reminded me of the early nineties. And I was like, oh my God, it's so busy now. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. So different. I was like, I don't want that. I don't, I wanted to stay this quiet. <laughs> it's wild. Though. But Jared, well, thank you so much. Thank you. And um, uh, tell everyone that I said hello. And um, I'm just excited to know that your son is so in love with movies and really digging up pop culture. Yeah, me too. It's a, it's a, he's a cool kid to parent. He's a cool kid to parent. So everyone, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Typewriter Talks. If you want to know more about Keep St. Pete Lit, you can go to keepstpetelit.org. And if you like this programming, please consider donating to help support um, us to continue on with uh, chatting with writers about their writing process. And again, thank you, Jarrett. And everyone, we will talk to you next week.